This episode was recorded before the 2023 SAG after strike. Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Jesse! Thunder and lightning, very, very frightening. The legendary television icon, Rose Marie. Go, Phil. Contraception is for everyone. The circle of life. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season three, episode three, Loco Hero. Hi, everyone. Hi. It's Meet the Parents Day. Sure is. We love a Meet the Parents episode. Has it been not to... No. I guess Corky. Corky. I know it's hard to count because we really kind of didn't really get to know them the way we got to know the Brown family. But it does sort of feel like once a season kind of a thing. When do we get like a deep dive into Miles? I was going to say, I think it's a while before we get like his kind of meet the family episode. Yeah. And Diane's gone by then. So I'd be curious to know what she thinks um, (gasps) his best. Oh, we never asked her that. We should ask her that. I just just audibly gasped that we didn't ask that. Oh, this is exciting. This is fun follow up research for us. It's the uh, beginning of season four when uh, Murphy's pregnant and Miles mm-hmm. says, you know, there should be a father and a hobby room and a garage and <laughs> or something like that. I'm, I'm totally yeah. butchering it. And, yes. and Murphy goes, Miles, you didn't even have that, which implies <laughs> that he's his parents are divorced. But I still think it fits into the fact that his parents, mm-hmm. even though he well, actually no, it fits in because he lied. Right. He said his parents owned a dry cleaning when they were all hippies. Yeah. So really, it, he could have been like, oh, my childhood was really rough. And he was telling the truth, but he was not really telling the truth. So I guess that line all this still works. to say the Silverbergs remain a mystery for the time being. But we do get quite the insight into the Fontana family. Yes, we do. And we have these amazing character actors. We have the legendary Rosemary from the Dick Van Dyke show and vaudeville, really, which we'll go into later, Mm -hmm. as Rose Fontana. I I, I really really wonder if they change the name once they cast her. Of all the questions, we didn't ask that. What Lauren is alluding to is we got some insight from the writers of the we episode. We did, some great stuff. Gary yeah. Donzig and Stephen Peterman. Friends, Friends of the of pod. Podcast. And one of the things they, I think it was Steve says, that the plus side of being at this point with the show is that they had an embarrassment of riches of talented pro character actors that they could bring in for roles like this. So it almost makes me wonder if Rosemary was like kind of the archetype as they were writing it. Yeah, because when I think when you're writing and you're, especially something so specific like Rose Fontana you you imagine either somebody that you know which we know happens very often on this show but also that idea of if someone played this person in a movie who would be playing them yeah and I feel like this is as you're if I was writing Rose Fontana I would have been imagining Rosemary yeah I wish she'd come back more and I really love all her mm-hmm. scenes in the flashbacks we get later on the season yes of a of, of baby Frank and mm-hmm. here's the thing so we know from Brown Like Me that Frank is one of seven kids he's the middle he says of seven kids <laughs> which totally tracks and that yep. therefore he gets left places all the time <laughs> so here's the thing do we think that he is the only boy That is so the vibe that I get. That's the vibe I get too. And I feel like if he had an older or a younger brother, it would have come into play, right? Because of his sort of insecurity and Mm -hmm. also his either like toxic masculinity or his like insecurity about not being a so-called like idea of what masculinity is, Mm -hmm. which is of course not true because he's a lovely human being and doesn't need to just be himself. I feel Mm -hmm. like that would have come up in conversation that he had a brother in some way, either someone he looked up to or someone he felt intimidated by. Speaking of the guest stars that we have, we meet Dominic Fontana, the father played by the legendary Barney Martin. 
there is something to even the the questions of Frank's sexuality that come up with his sisters yes, we'll as well this episode. There is something about imagining Frank and his neuroses and his his comfort around women in a way that, that is not yes. like his comfort in the in his platonic relationship with Murphy in the that makes me feel like a a boy who was raised surrounded by girls who was often forgotten and probably doesn't have that much of a relationship with his father. Yeah. Where there's he has a discomfort around traditional masculinity and the traditionally masculine men around him that gives me he didn't have a lot of fellows. Yeah, I think so. And then we get more into that of like the jacket he wants to wear when he's a kid mm-hmm. because it's the idea of being like a cool man, you mm-hmm. know. And his first kiss, but we'll talk more about that when we get mm-hmm. to that episode. I just watched it to get like some reminding of those scenes. So, but also sweet Frank. I don't want Frank any other way. I love his neuroses. I love that he wants to be. I love that Frank wants to be toxic masculine, but he just can't because he just isn't. Yeah, <laughs> and and I think that you know you hear stories of of a lot of men who have a lot of female friends because they mm-hmm. grew up with only sisters. Not that that's yep. always what happens, but it's a common thing no. that. You can watch this episode. Mm-hmm. The link is on our website and in all of our, our link trees. So we hope that you will follow along with us as we go through season three. So also we should mention, as we said, this episode is written by Gary Donzig and Steve Peterman. Uh, it's directed by Barnett Kelman, and it aired mm-hmm. October 1st, 1990. The title, if people don't realize, is a riff off of the film local hero which oddly enough i saw for the first time last year really i had never seen it i don't remember when i saw that i mean well, I peter think capaldi I yeah like i just it's his first i film. saw it yeah mm-hmm. peter regert a uh, burt lancaster shall we jump in i think we should definitely jump in so loco hero opens to a very familiar baseline it's a, everyone knows the song, whether you know the name of it or not, Lauren and I did because we're those people, but you hear these very iconic bass notes that eventually will turn into some wah-wahs and some other things. But it's the opening chords of Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Yes. And Papa Was a Rolling Stone was penned by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong, who recently passed away. And we've talked about him on the show before and was sung by The Temptations. We know them. We just saw them recently on we the show. did. And something interesting is that the Funk Brothers are playing the, the backing track that we have here. Mm-hmm. We recognize we talk about them a lot. And what I also thought was interesting is that, you know, we know the Rolling Stones, obviously, like, that's a reference to the same sort of idea. But they were saying that that was something that was sort of said in the neighborhood, you know, Rolling Stone um, gathers no moss. But also it comes from a saying from Muddy Waters, who Mm. used the name for a song, which is how the Rolling Stones actually technically got their name. And also Like a Rolling Stone is the title of Bob Dylan's first rock and roll album. So I, I wanted to mention the fact that it does come from Muddy Waters because I think sometimes it's not mentioned, particularly the the basis when it comes from an African-American performer around that time, right? Like, And we mm-hmm. have these white performers who are more known for it. And so that was something interesting that I found out in my research. This song yeah. came out in 1973, so it's later than some of the music we've had on the show. It's the second version of it. The first version was in 72. Yeah, it is. So yeah, I love this song. You hear those opening chords and immediately I'm like, there is a bus that's about to happen. There are cops circling the door. Something action is going to happen. Guess what? Something action does happen. 
Frank, our intrepid reporter, is in action. He's getting closer to the action. He ducks under police tape to get info on the seven hostages. What I love about this, and I wrote this in my notes, and then it was wonderful because then Steve, in his response, mentioned it as well. It was so cool to see Frank actually in his, like, investigative reporter yeah, element. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Because we hear all the time about, like, yeah, he's got, like, the hotshot reporting role, but we only ever see neurotic Frank on the outside, so we don't see what he's like investigating and in the field and there's this whole thing about how he goes and he travels and goes to location goes to war zones and that kind of stuff but we've never actually seen it yeah and this particularly is like it's not just like oh when you go to a war zone you already know that you're going to be in danger right like he Mm -hmm. makes the choice in the moment i have a crew i can go in right yeah to put himself in danger he's on the scene he's been standing there he's been reporting in from the other side of the police tape but for some reason he decides to go underneath and we cut in during that moment steve wrote to us Joe loved, as any actor would, having the central storyline and especially loved the opening where he got the chance to play a heroic field reporter he was supposed to be. And I was like, yes, because that's what we've been told. We've been told that's what he does. So anyway, it was really satisfying to see Frank do his thing. It's not just there for no reason. Like it then, which I had forgotten. So when, when at the end, you know, Murphy brings up his bravery Mm-hmm. in work but not his personal life it's like oh you just like fit that in it was like they were yep. for a reason oh man it was just so good so as we're watching frank you know quiz the police officer in front of him we find out that the gunman won't release anyone unless he can make a statement to the media frank immediately is like i'm the media i'll go in i got this all i want to say is he he walks forward with his arms up i wonder how his camera crew felt <laughs> There was no conferring with his camera crew about the fact that they're going in. Jesse, you're right. You know, he just, he's like, I got a crew and he takes off. He doesn't look at them. He just heads on it. I'm like, this poor crew, what does Frank Fontana do to these men? Yeah, right. And there's an upcoming episode where we, we sort of find out through written words, so to speak, I'll explain it later. That there are other producers on the show other than Miles. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense, right? It's like, you know, your Absolutely. segment producers, right? Have to, yeah. have to be able, he can't produce every segment, right? Yeah, like someone would travel with Frank to go somewhere. Right, so maybe this is like Frank's crew. So they're yeah. used to him, like, I'm sure. Stuff? Like, they, th- what I like is that I, this is, and to me, this is not an error in, in sitcom filming yeah yeah. i think it's actually it it gives a wonderful story of the idea that i imagine this is how frank is in the field yeah i imagine that his crew just knows he's gonna they know if they're on the crew with him he's gonna just make a choice and they just have to follow because that is their job yeah and frank i i assume that there is kind of a, a brotherhood here of a like we follow the story yeah they're letting out the hostages and then he goes in with the camera crew again this poor camera crew But what I like is then we cut to him walking out with the cops. And for some reason, Frank, as the liaison, is holding one of his cuffed elbows as if he's a fellow cop. But it also feels like Frank has had a deep conversation inside with this person. And so he's protecting, right? Like he feels like he's protecting this guy. No, that's what I love is that for some reason, the cops have not been like, okay, your job is done here and taken him. Like the way the gunman is looking at Frank... Bless this like featured extra who played the gunman. Yeah, he's, he's really giving good. us such a story about the way he's looking at Frank. I'm like, oh, this man bared his soul to Frank. Like yeah. they are connected. And Frank was like, I'm gonna take care. If you come out and you let the hostages go, I will, I will make sure that nothing bad. Happens I will listen to you. to you. Yeah. So we are not the only ones impressed by yes. Frank's bravery and the action of this moment because as Frank is walking out with the gunman gazing at him like a lost puppy. 
our camera pulls back and we're watching all of this unfold on a screen in Murphy's office. Murphy is sitting at her desk, her back to the screen with her glasses on holding a mug of coffee. At her desk chairs are Jim and Corky wrapped, wrapped attention watching the screen. Miles is standing eagerly at the controls of the VCR and Frank is standing behind him in a perfect position to both watch himself, but also watch the people watch him, I must say. And we see as, as it pulls out, we see Miles's finger hit pause on the tape and he says, cut, print, Emmy. (laughs) Miles says, primo television, Frank. That's one of the bravest things I've ever seen. And what I like is Grant plays him so sincerely, so earnestly impressed and excited about this. Like this is not... This is good ratings. Yeah, Yeah, this is not Miles performing excitement. Miles is legitimately so impressed. And Frank does the the bashful, humble performance of, oh, he just did what he had to do. And if you call that bravery. And the man, his psychological gesture, like he might as well be just scuffing his feet on the floor. Like, oh, no, if I mean, if you're going to call that bravery. Uh, which everyone does. Corky says she was glued to her TV. All she kept thinking was, what if something had happened to him? And the last thing she said to him, and then what I like is, <laughs> Faith does this so well. Faith shifts back to the moment she said this thing to him. She doesn't just say the words. She shifts back and relives the moment of saying, some people shouldn't wear bicycle pants in public. I love Poor this Frank. moment for Corky. I really do. Yeah. That she's like, what if the last thing I ever said to Frank? And it's like, no one has to say <laughs> he's this? in the room with you right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you actually didn't need to say it again. <laughs> and with just... the same sincerity. Like you didn't actually need to register that opinion again, Corky. It's just, oh, it was lovely. My favorite moment is Jim then stands from his seat and walks around. And he says, Frank, I never thought you'd surpass the courage you showed when you penetrated the Afghan border past five armed sentries. I also have to say, hearing Jim say penetrated was quite a moment. <laughs> Jesse! I'm sorry he said it. And I was like, he... <laughs> No, I, I love says, it. I love that you said it. It's so masculine <laughs> when you penetrated the Afghan border past five armed sentries. Like, it's of a time. I'm sorry, keep going. Yep, and he says, but this? And then sweet Jim throws his arm around Frank's neck in this firm side hug like like he's a little brother and says, I'm so damn proud of you, you crazy son of a gun. (laughs) And what I like is Frank is legit embarrassed. Like he looks, he's so overwhelmed by this praise that he clearly never gets. And he says, oh, this is is nothing. And he says, it was actually eight arm sentries. (laughs) Murphy at that moment decides to chime in. And this entire time, Murphy is just looking annoyed is an easy way to put it mm-hmm. there's some irritation there's a there's a lack of rising from her chair a lack of excited energy we have noted and she asks if they're all through yet because she hears frank needs to get back on krypton murphy i feel like is annoyed but she's a little proud of him too which I oh think she's I proud but yeah but- yeah she's proud but the like the filling her office with the the zealous squealing praise is not her favorite yes no no unless it's about her uh-huh. And then Frank turns into the little brother of sisters and he goes, uh-oh, Murphy's jealous because he's going to make TV guides most watchable. And then they all leave her office chuckling and are greeted by a full bullpen of applause, which Murphy looks just as excited that she is not receiving. <laughs> Frank waves them all off saying, anyone could have done it. All you need. And then he turns back to the group. is the heart of a lion and nerves of steel. And at that moment, in perfect comedic timing, 
Now, I did check the, the credits for this, mm-hmm. and our, our young actor is only listed as office worker. I think that's Marv. I think it's Marv. I was going to write Marv, and, I, and then I, I checked the credits, and he's just office worker. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's because he's given a name when he's an extra, right? Exactly. And so it's, like, yeah. not recorded, probably. And so they just made yeah. him office worker. And I probably just said office worker in the script. And can I just say, having, like, played those characters where it's, like, oh yeah, book person number one, right? Uh-huh. And as, as we all have. But I remember where they listed me differently in the contract than they did on the call sheet. Mm-hmm. And then they cut everyone else. Uh, for line purposes but me mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then when imdb came out someone else stole my credit for like a couple months so marv we see you we see you marv and we see marv in this moment walking up to the gang and let's frank know that a uh, security called his parents are on the way up our heart of a lion and nerves of steel man immediately collapses into neuro neuroses what i love about this is that it's what joe does so well it's, so it's good. funny but it's so real Saying, oh, my God, in a line is one of the hardest things to say sincerely. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It, we say it so much casually, but to sell it as casual, to not oversell it, over enunciate it, make it a thing. It's actually very hard to have an oh, my God, oh, my God, was yeah. it today? And make it no, different like, like every time yes. and build. And yeah, no, it, it's great. This is such a great showcase he, for Joe. Yeah. He makes some of these cliche neurotic spirals sound very natural, which is really hard. It's really hard to sell. So. He's saying, oh, my God, what is today? Someone says Thursday. No, today's date. Jim says the 16th. Good Lord, Frank, what is the matter? Frank is spiraling. How could he do this? How could he forget? We're all like, oh, no, something happened. And the elevator opens and two of the most surly and sullen people walk out. They are holding luggage. The male of the two is wearing a garment bag hanging off of his neck in a very uncomfortable way. And the older female is holding three oranges. Frank spins around. Mom, pop. And the woman we now know as mom says, oh, good. He remembers who we are. Too bad you didn't remember to pick us up at the airport. This is Rose Fontana, played by the legendary television icon, vaudeville star, Rose Marie. Ah, like you see her face and you just get excited. For those who aren't familiar with Rosemary, may we recommend the entire series of The Dick Van Dyke Show, one <laughs> the of the best series. sitcoms in the history of television, <laughs> where she played Sally Rogers. And I won't go into it now, but I am obsessed with all of the real women that Sally Rogers is based on. And I will talk your ear off talking about <laughs> these women. But if anyone isn't aware, The Dick Van Dyke Show is based on behind the scenes on your show of shows because it is written and created by Carl Reiner. So this was my first introduction to who Rosemary was. Now you may notice she has a little bow in her hair. This is a signature that Rosemary Mm -hmm. wore her entire life because before she was Rosemary, she was baby Rosemary. Yes. (laughs) And performed in vaudeville since she was three years old. This is a trooper. So We'll put pictures on our social media and in our show notes. But just to give you a sense, she was like a little Shirley Temple. But she had the Mm -hmm. voice, as she described, of Sophie Tucker. In fact, some people, particularly on the radio, thought that she was like a 30-year-old little person. And that she wasn't Mm -hmm. actually a child. Now, something that's really interesting that I found out in this great documentary, which I highly recommend, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, is that... Not only is Rosemary Italian, she's also Polish, but through her father, uh, Frank Mazetta, who went by the name of Frank Curley, who was a vaudeville mm-hmm. uh, actor, but he also had 
as Italians did at the time, major connections to the mob and referred to Al Capone as Uncle Al. <laughs> what a time. What a time. Also, her father took 100% of her earnings for her and his real family. And I say real in quotes because she was the second family and her mother was not married to Frank. He was her mistress. And so mm -hmm. she was supporting not just her family, but she was supporting his wife and his kids with his first marriage or his, you know, public marriage, which is awful. Rosemary is so interesting to me as someone who really broke the mold as far as having longevity mm -hmm. out of child stardom for that time period. Like it's yeah. it's still hard for child actors to grow to be allowed to grow and the way that she instead of trying to completely shrug it off and pretend like it didn't happen, she found a way to give herself a trademark, she found a way to play it into it to use it to play against type. She really I wouldn't say aspirational because I'm not dealing with that myself. But I I just think it's very inspiring to see someone take take control of their career when it started in a place where everyone else had control over what she looked like and did and said. Yeah, and she went from vaudeville to Vitaphone shorts to radio to television. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, she's actually in a film with George Burns and Gracie Allen when she's a kid. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. And also what's, I think, about her career as well is that a lot of her career when she was, you know, in her 20s was sustained by nightclub culture, which you don't really mm -hmm. have anymore for performers, right? Like she may not have been seen in a lot of film or a lot of, you know, television the way we would see it now, but sustained a career by just touring the country in nightclubs. And she was, you know, well known for that. It was a big deal to go see her in that. And that's interesting as well. We don't really have that anymore. Yeah, that's really true. And and, and Steve said she was a, a consummate pro. Knew where all the angles were, knew where the jokes were, you know, just, you know, didn't complain, hit her marks, and doesn't surprise me at all. That that's yeah. perhaps where the name Rose Fontana came from. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be surprised. You said it was, you know, obviously a thrill to work with her. Mm -hmm. And she knew exactly who this woman was, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I'm sure having grown up with, you know, such an Italian influence in her life, <laughs> mm -hmm. that she did mm -hmm. know this woman really well. You know this woman did not need a lot of line reads for how to say this. She has a, yeah. a line coming up where it's just like, beat, 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 beat. And you just yeah. know this woman knew exactly how to land. She's so great. Yeah. Sally Rogers. Oh. Then we also meet Dominic Fontana, dad who responds to the airport pickup with, we waited two and a half hours, Frankie. Who waits two and a half hours, though? I mean. The Fontanas do. I also love hearing Frankie. There is mm. something so like little boy who yes. is not allowed to grow up. We hear Frankie and Francis. And I love that dad says Frankie and mom says Francis. Yeah. That is so specific. It is very specific. And you know, like, I just, again, to this this conversation, I feel like we could have this conversation forever about, uh, <laughs> about why Frank is the way he is. But there's something about his dad calling him Frankie that gives me the impression they never had a, like, handshake acknowledgement that Frankie grew up to Frank. That his dad still talks to him like a little kid, and so he doesn't feel like a man. So dad, a.k.a. Dominic Fontana, is played by another legendary character actor, Barney Martin. Mm. Barney, I think a lot of people might know as Morty Seinfeld. The, yeah, uh, I feel like that's the Jerry's big father one. on Seinfeld. I one of my favorite things is that he originated the role of Amos 
aka Mr. Cellophane in Chicago. I always forget that. You're right. Isn't that, uh, and you just look at him, you're like, of course you were Amos. Like, you walked so that John C. Riley could run. Like, it's, he's so great. So yeah, he was in the 76 original Broadway production of Chicago. He has a supporting role in Mel Brooks' The Producers from 1967. Yes, he does. I also knew him growing up as Liza Minnelli's dad in the Arthur movie. Yes, same, same. My, my family loved Arthur. One of the things I like is that he, Barney Martin was the third actor to play Seinfeld's father. The third? <laughs> I thought he was the second. Oh yeah. my God. And he's the most, he is the one most identified with the yeah. role, but he's the third actor. He unfortunately passed in 2005 from bladder cancer. One of my things that I, of course, had to check. Yes, he was in Murder, She Wrote. He was in two episodes. Yeah. He played uh, Lieutenant Timothy Hanratty. That doesn't surprise which, me. If anybody makes sense to have the last name of Hanratty, it is Barney Martin. <laughs> yes. He it was an Italian Catholic man, but famously was often mistaken as as a Jewish father because he played them so well. He is just one of those consummate professionals. He started working in the 50s and worked all the way up until 2001 was his last credit. He wow. was a voice in Buzz Lightyear of Star Command. He was in something iconic like every decade. And when he shows up, the, what I love is you see him and you see this kind of slightly softer pushover husband yeah next to just the like the stout firm quality of rosemary like you just you you see these two you see the expression on their face as the elevator door opens and you immediately know the dynamic oh, of this couple it's it's uh, it's a literally a laugh line you're like oh yeah okay oh no so as he says we waited two and a half hours frankie murphy suddenly perks up quite a bit yes in this and goes, gee, Frankie, that's terrible. Did you forget they were coming? <laughs> With what I call her like evil Kermit grin. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, forget, of course, how could he forget? He sent a limo. You mean he didn't show up? And they share that uh, they had to take a cab. It was a $30 cab plus $2 for the luggage. And then Dominic says, and then they asked for a tip. Well, he gave him a tip, a tip to help with the luggage. There's your tip. You got a tip now. And Rose says, and the next thing I know, they're screaming at each other. Your father could have had a heart attack. Then what? I'd be standing there with a dead husband on the sidewalk, trying to get a sky cab to pick up a dead man. Frank says he is furious about this. He's going to call that limo company right away. But Murphy insists before he tries to walk away and call the limo company, he hasn't introduced everybody. Frank says, Dominic, Rose, this is Murphy. Murphy, take care of the rest. Boy, am I mad. <laughs> and storms away into Murphy's office. <laughs> Murphy just loves seeing Frank so excited. Just like tease, oh, tease, tease. so mean. I love it. She reintroduces herself and then the rest of the group, there are handshakes. And I wrote, Corky immediately starts hosting. Oh, you're right. She I, does. I had, that hadn't dawned on me. You are correct. Yeah. I feel like she knows that of the people left, who's the host of the group. So Corky tells them to make their way over to the table and make themselves comfortable. You know, this is the conference table where they come with, up with many of the exciting stories they see on the show every week. To which Rose says, well, they don't watch the show that much. Oh. Wednesday is Canasta night. <laughs> I, I know that this is going to, you know, really sort of, you know, be pushed to the limit, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that you hear a lot of stories like this about family members of famous people actually mm -hmm. where it's like because mm -hmm. it's family they're just like okay like that's just you know I can't watch every episode right like yeah. you know they tell you the truth more your family yes. yeah they're not phased by your celebrity they just see you as the kid you were they don't actually care and, and think that you're fancy the way the rest of the world yeah. does 
coming from a family of card players, the Wednesday is Canasta night. I really understand the sanctity of that night. <laughs> I know Canasta well. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Murphy says she's just excited to see them face to face. She can't believe it's taken that many years. I also can't believe it's taken that many years, but I appreciate they waited for us. To which Rose says, you know, you're very pretty in person. Now, I hear the dot, dot, dot yeah. that's about to come. Murphy does not and just says, thank you. And she says, I wonder why your face looks so round on TV. Said face drops and then asks, can't they do something about that? To which Murphy turns to Miles. <laughs> and Miles just, Miles just tags right in. So what brings them to Washington? And they, uh, Frankie didn't tell them. He's throwing them a 50th anniversary party. Relatives are flying in from all over the country. Aww. To which Jim tags in and Jim saves the day. Yes, he does. Of course he told them. Miles was out that day, upper respiratory ailment, to which the parents in unison both say, it's going around. It can kill you. <laughs> Jim sits down. And I, I love that, like, we all assume Jim, closer in age, closer in generation to these parents, is going to be the one to speak their speech. And he says... He wants to say kudos to them. 50 years is quite an achievement. They must be proud. To which Rose says, not really. We're Catholic. We get married. We have kids. We get old. And we die. I love her line reading of that, that This line. is the line that I was talking about where she just, she read that line. She knew exactly how to read that line. She knew where every you joke was in just let Rosemary do it. Uh, yep. Mwah. I just went, romantic. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Murphy says, why don't I go get Frank? And in that moment, everyone leaps to offer to get instead. And she says, no, it's my, he's in my office. I will go get him. Cut to Murphy's office where Frank is desperately trying to book a hotel for his parents, <laughs> which she is unable to do. I would also like to mention that this is, I think, the third time that Murphy is in like a wrap skirt. Like, I didn't realize they were so yeah. in 1990 because I enjoy it. And it's also tied in the front as opposed to I tie mine on the side and maybe I've been tying it wrong my entire life, although I recently just got one. There are strong opinions in the world about that. So Murphy is not happy. <laughs> she she tells Frank to get off the phone. Your mother thinks I'm fat. <laughs> Which is only funny because Candace Bergen is not fat at all. So far from. Yes. So far from. So far from. And then, you know, she can't believe that, you know, he forgot to pick up his parents and for their 50th anniversary. And Frank goes, well, actually, it's not that he forgot to pick them up for his 50th anniversary. Shocker. He forgot the entire party. Yeah. None of us are surprised. Just then, Miles enters with the Fontanas because it seems like he can't take being with them. And one of many jokes, which Steve talked about, that no, we should mention that the two writers are Jewish. And so these were jokes that they felt were fun to lean into. I would say that they are funny because they are true. Uh-huh. I have been many people's first Jew, and many people have said strange things to me that they think is very helpful or just facts. Thank you for your service. Yes. Well, thank you very much. So pretty much as Maria's telling Miles how they have many Jewish people in their complex, and they seem very nice. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes. I just wrote, I have those relatives. <laughs> oh, it actually mm -hmm. reminds me of I, when I was uh, a career coach for actors and I was in an office and I had an appointment with someone and they came in and I was in the back making copies and I saw that they were here. I was like, oh, I'll be right with you. And he goes, are you Jewish? And the entire uh. office just sort of stopped 
and a friend of mine who had been in the military like stood up as if like, I'm going to protect you, Lauren. Yeah. Uh, and I went, yes, yes I am, why? He goes, oh, I work with someone in my office who's Jewish and they say that the same way. <gasps> and we were like, what? Oh. oh, it's gonna be an interesting meeting. <laughs> I just need more of the world to understand the concept of not saying the silent things out loud. Yes, I digress. So Frank lies about the fact that he doesn't have a hotel room for them and that he purposely didn't book it for them, even though his dad, Dominic, mm -hmm. said that they were promised like a big, nice hotel room. He feels that they haven't spent a lot of time together. And so he wants them to spend time with him, which is hard because I, I don't think that Frank's bathroom has a door. Yeah, no, we talk about that in the next scene. Yep. Yeah. I also, I feel so much for Frank in this scenario obviously frank is a mess and we love that frank is a mess yes but i also feel i'm thinking about the the backstory of why this fell on frank to plan and oh i think this I idea of the the middle child planning the big anniversary thing that's generally an oldest child thing the fact that we suspect the only boy mm, planning oh. it also not very traditional interesting but I really imagine that from this place of being the forgotten child going through all this, I feel like Frank volunteered as his chance to show. Oh, absolutely. And to get, get the, yeah. to do the thing. And I think he genuinely wanted to give them this, you know, this metropolitan exciting thing because he's the one who's out here and he's not back. Like he's doing the whatever. And he just, and of course, no one believes he could. And then he inevitably becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. of everything that they thought he was going to be. He ends up doing it by forgetting and dropping the ball and is hurt. I just feel so much for this man yeah. who is doing everything everyone thought he was going to do. And he's trying so hard to prove that he didn't. I mean, the whole, I can't believe I forgot. It's just yeah. like, it's there's so much pressure on that line. Uh -huh. And also, I think as probably the most successful, richest yeah. person in the family, it probably was no like, oh, big, big, big shot has the money. And for him to be mm -hmm. like, oh, look how impressive I am. Be proud of me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw money around. And then he just uh -huh. completely just messed the whole thing up. I was before we moved to Phil's, I just wanted to say one of my favorite things that comes up in this in these opening scenes is mm -hmm. just Murphy's very dangerous, sweet, helpful voice. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is very close to her on air voice. <laughs> Yep. It's so, it's so dangerously saccharine. Yeah. And she makes such scary eye contact while smiling. That's how you know it's dangerous. And I love it. So we cut to Phil's and Frank is on the phone with La Cucina. He needs a reservation for tomorrow night. Round eight o'clock. 40 people. There's a pause. And he goes, how about 8.30? They clearly hang up on him. It's a nightmare. He announces to the gang who are sitting at the hero table that he's going to have to have the party at Phil's. And he says, my parents' 50th anniversary at a place that has a condom machine in the ladies' room. Go, Phil. Contraception is for everyone. Yes, it is. That's very progressive. I'm proud of him for letting women decide if there's contraception in their lives. <laughs> I feel like that was a Phyllis choice. I feel like Phyllis was the, the queen of the condom machine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Jim brings up, he's sitting at the center of the hero table. He says, you know, not one of his family has made it to their 50th. It's always the men, 60, 65 tops, and then they're gone. Oh Look at me, cottage cheese, fruit salad, daily exercise. Who am I kidding? You can't fight genetics. Phil, a plate of onion rings. <laughs> also, I want to say my, my own father was from a family that was basically that. Oh, no. And 
that's it sounds like a very dark comment, but there is very much this thing of like a certain side of your family is known for being the one that that goes early. John Candy, that was like his whole mm-hmm. philosophy in his life. He yep. felt like his life was going to be short, so he lived his life like it would be short. It's one of the reasons I love John Candy because that mm. was my father. Oh. And my my father actually just get a little little sincere in the moment. My father passed at 62 and he outlived all the men in his family. Oh my god, wow. Yes. Yes. So it is a real thing and so I just love watching Jim say this and doing the math in his own head. <laughs> Phil makes his way over, having heard the the siren song of an onion ring order. And he asks Frank if he needs anything because he looks a little peaked. And Frank looks up at him with eyes. He, he has emoji eyes. They're, they're bright and glistening and full of love. And he says, that is just like you, Phil. Never too busy to be concerned about one of your regulars. It's that kind of sensitivity that keeps us all coming back here. Because Phil's is not just a bar. It's a home. Which I have to say is true. He says, I love it. And I love you, Phil. There's a dot, dot, dot on Phil's deadpan face. He just goes, couldn't find a place for your party, could you, Frank? People think they can take me for granted. Well, I'm not a doormat, Frank. I have feelings. Which I was like, go, Phil. Frank apologizes. Phil says he forgives him. And then Frank asks, so can he have the place? And sorry, Phil is booked. Apparently, the German embassy is having a reunification party. Excuse me, I have to go buy some lederhosen. <laughs> and smirks gleefully as he walks away. And isn't that our latest Berlin Wall re- reference? Yes, no, it's absolutely, that's the first thing I thought of that that's a Berlin Wall reference, yeah. Quite topical moment. <laughs> so Frank sits down dejected. He says he can't fit 40 people into his condo. He still needs to put a door on the bathroom. To which I went, uh, because his parents are staying with him right now. <laughs> yes. And then he starts to pause and he says, although a private home would be a good idea And he starts to slowly turn toward Murphy, who's eating a salad. (laughs) Let us note, a salad. And as he stares at Murphy, he says, there's got to be a place, something elegant, impressive. He puts his head in his hand, special. And Murphy just says, don't give me that face, Frank. If it didn't work on that Romanian gymnast, it sure as hell isn't going to work on me. (laughs) Right at that moment, Miles arrives with the parents. The mom says, you know, some of the neighbors have had a hard time with it, but we told them, long as the Holy Father says you shouldn't blame the Jews anymore, that should be good enough for you. Also, that has happened to me. (laughs) Yep. Miles says, that's terrific. (laughs) And then cries out, Frank! I think it was kindergarten. My my mom says that you killed Jesus. Oh, fuck. Thanks. Good to know. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. cool. So Miles cries out, Frank, there you are. When you left your parents four hours ago, I thought you said to be back in a few minutes. I must have misunderstood you. And Frank says, oh, he apologizes. He had to follow up on a lead. Did they have fun? Miles says they had a wonderful time. They took a studio tour. They found the executive lounge, the emergency generator, the air conditioning system. And of course, his personal favorite, the janitor's stockroom. There are some things that just sound funnier than the normal way we say. It's just, yeah, the rhythm of that line is so good. Frank wants them to sit down and eat. Jim stands, offering to get the menus. Then Corky stands, offering to get them some water. And then Miles keeps standing and runs away to get breath mints. Yes, So only Murphy and Frank remain. (laughs) Frank stumbles a bit, and then he says he needs to tell them something about the party. He looks at Murphy. And Murphy, Candace I love her in this scene. The funniest thing. 
which is the way she talks through her teeth while continuing to eat her salad. And not look so at him. Not look at him. She's just looking at her plate. The salad's on its way to her mouth. And she just says, I'm not doing it. And she does the thing where her lips barely move. It's through her teeth. It's like uh, there's a there's a British comedian and he does a famous bit where it's a uh, little man trapped in a box. And he's able to throw his voice in a way that makes the person sound really tiny and far away. Uh-huh. He's so good. Rob. Um, she does that a bit. Her voice sounds tiny and far away. It's well, like a ventriloquist thing. I was going to say, is it daughter, not? Yeah, maybe she had some practice. <laughs> is perhaps there's something in the blood? Maybe. So, yeah, she does a little voice throw and her like her. It's just the through the teeth is so good. She says, I'm not doing it. The mom says he forgot to hire the photographer. Oh, Francis. He says, no, it's, it's not the photographer. It's about the restaurant. He looks at Murphy again. Not doing it. You forgot the restaurant. Don't be silly, says Dominic. How could he? Frank starts to go, I, he forgot the restaurant. And Rose says, oh my God, 40 relatives, Grandma Fontana. How could you? How could you? And Murphy lets out this moan as if in pain. Yes. And Frank jumps on it. What was that? Did, did, did you say something? Murphy, at first I thought was twisting her fingers. No, no, she's twisting her fork. And she says, he, he didn't forget. He just didn't think a restaurant was special enough for the occasion, so I offered my townhouse. Feel free to say no if you don't like the idea. She's such a good friend. She can't not be a good friend. She can't right? not. And she she releases her hand, and we see that the fork is now bent in half. And what I have to say is, I say a lot how Candace does this, like, Kermit laugh yeah. or Kermit smile at times. This was straight up Miss Piggy bending bars which she does in multiple <laughs> movies that's funny that i hadn't thought about that you're right and frank just goes are you kidding they love it surprise so we're in the townhouse murphy is not ready yet she's leaning forward on a huge laptop in a way that ice cream get a chiropractor because that looks painful <laughs> so eldon enters and even though we saw him last episode, he does not have a beard. He is completely clean. He does not. Shaven. Now, Steve mentioned to us that he he was trying to think if Bobby had shaved a beard for a role. And mm -hmm. I was trying to think for a moment, like, what that would be. And then I remembered, no, 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 we saw him last episode and he had a beard. So yeah. odds are maybe he just did it for his own self and they wrote it into the script. But he did say that... They didn't think that they would ask someone to shave just for a joke. But, may, but I do love that without the facial hair, his hair and sideburns seem so sculpted. Oh, I hadn't I hadn't realized that. Perhaps yeah, there's really right. almost a, a like a pompadour element to the top of his hair. The sideburns are so nicely like cut at the at the 90 degree. Angle. It's just he looks very sculpted. I like him better with a beard. I, I like most most men better with a beard. Yeah, I blame Kenneth Branagh in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, the whole cast. <laughs> the whole cast. I blame uh, Shakespeare because of the quote for Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, there but you go. continue. <laughs> so Eldon enters. He's finished the cabinets in the kitchen. He's really trying to get her attention, but she's really not noticing. Mm -mm. And finally, she notices that something's different about his face. And she goes, your face, it's naked. And Eldon says, Eureka so good it's so good i just it's uh it's fantastic in that he uh, had had that beard since he was 12 <laughs> i believe it 
she really looks at his face. She really has to think about it, but she thinks she likes it. Something that we do learn is that Eldon is still depressed. He's still in love with Corky. And so he mailed her the whiskers, to which Murphy tells him to get a grip. Here's the thing. I give all credit to Robert Pastorelli. Eldon should be a creep. Like, he yeah. should be so uncomfortable to watch and hear him say these things. Like, like it, even uh, even at the time, this he should be so creepy but he just isn't he's so sweet it's the way that bobby he's plays so him sweet. yeah he's so sweet this and is you inappropriate do... yeah and we've gotten so many hints at like his true honor as a person like i truly believe that if corky cornered him and sincerely said you're making me very uncomfortable he would stop he would yes but i also think that corky being who she is doesn't feel like she would can never. say that which will go exactly. later in the scene but and it's, it's not a like it's not a victim blame thing we're not going to that level yeah, of it yeah. but it is just like corky would never because it's corky and i don't i think eldon would need to hear that to stop but then he would it's just interesting and I won't go into too much detail about it, but if anyone is listening to You Must Remember This series, which we talked about in our Patreon, they're talking a lot about, you know, the 90s. In It's called erotic 90s. And the idea that, like, if this was a woman in, like, a movie in the 90s, it would have been Fatal Attraction. Oh, exactly. The way the 90s, you know, dealt mm -hmm. with women is a very interesting sort of parallel to this. That being Eldon said- Eldon gets to be cute. A woman would be psychotic. Yes. That being said, a woman doing something like this is played for laughs on Ted Lasso. And yes. someone brought up if it had been a man, this would be not played for laughs. So there's also yep. now that sort of change. The change of the time is fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So- Murphy has time before the party to take a bubble bath. The door rings. It's probably the caterer. But it's not. It's Frank and his parents. <sighs> They're early. Again, dumping his parents off on other people so he doesn't have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Now, what I love is, again, these little sort of moments when, you know, we really sort of get how famous Murphy is. Because as soon as Rose walks in, she's, like, so impressed. She's, like, looking around. She says mm -hmm. that it looked bigger in Home and Garden, right? Like, she's seen this place before. Mm -hmm. And something, you know, really interesting that we found out from Gary, who helped co-write this episode, is that this sort of idea is based on, now, not him forgetting, but the idea of having an anniversary party for his parents in the home of a famous friend of his actually did happen. And his friend, Marsha Mason, donated her home. And, and he said that people were, like, impressed that they were in the home of a celebrity. Right? It happens. Like, I get that. I, I think that's... I, I wouldn't be surprised if Murphy's been approached about this before. Oh, um, I'm sure people would, yeah. And I think Frank's the only one she said yes to. It's very sweet. Yeah. So Frank and Murphy talk privately in the foyer, and she pretty much tells him, you can't leave your parents with people and just, like, have them deal with them. But Frank says he has a really good feeling about tonight. He thinks it's going to be an evening that they're going to talk about for a long time. And then the button on the joke is that the caterer arrives dressed, as I would describe, sort of as a children's party cowboy. Yeah. And he says, howdy, partners, Uncle Wiggly Piggly's authentic Texas barbecue here to make your party real humdinger. Where do you want Honestly, the ribs? it sounds delicious. <laughs> and messy. Yes. Which is why 
which we find out later why that's a big concern mm -hmm. for Murphy, but we all know that this is not, not good. And then the music swells into our next scene as the button of the joke. And we we are the camera's pulling back from the party, which happens to be out the back patio. We're we're looking through the windows. It sounds delightful. It seems like there's the 40 family members have arrived. But they are outside. Yes. And we find that inside in the living room, there seems to be a barricade of chairs created at every entrance yes. to the living room. Which I do love seeing Murphy be careful with her domestic space. She's never hit me as the type of person that would care too much about her her living space in that way. There's someone who's like cleaning every surface and making sure it's spotless. This is different. There is a Texas barbecue happening with people with bibs on outside because people are wearing Uncle Wiggly Piggly bibs outside. Yeah. So this is not a a normal affair where you could you know, hold a little plate with some hors d'oeuvres and a classy affair where people aren't going to spill. These are people dripping like butter from corn cobs and sauce from ribs yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And you get the sense it's like this is probably all that Frank could get on short notice. Yes. Frank is not in the party. He is alone in the living room on the phone yeah. saying that he knows it's late, but it's important that he speaks to the senator. Of course he'll hold. Murphy is chased in by a man who we find out is Uncle Sal sharing his medical story. Apparently, after they opened his chest, they took a, a vein from his thigh. Oof. Murphy, by the way, is also in a really, really fun looking lace crochet white yeah. sweater over blacks. Like she's almost in like catering hostess outfit. <laughs> she's not dressed for ribs. We'll put it that way. She says, she, you know, she can't wait to hear how it turns out. But you know the rules. No one's allowed past the chairs. She'll see him outside again. Remember where they left off? Vein in the thigh. And Uncle Sal makes his way back out. I don't know why vein in the thigh is possibly my favorite joke in the entire episode, but I think it's so funny. funny. Murphy then marches her way past the chairs over to Frank, says he's been on the phone for over 45 minutes. Get off it now. Get off, get off, get off. Frank says he's a reporter. When there's a fast-breaking story, he has to go with it. Oh, and at that moment, Senator Holden arrives on the phone. He says, Senator Holden, he was in the press gallery last week when the senator proposed a National Gingivitis Prevention Week, and he thinks there's a big story in it for FYI. Murphy says this is unbelievable. <laughs> and right at that moment, Rose arrives. She's yelling out the back, that's it, Teresa, no more cigarettes. So I have had Candon that Teresa is another sister just because yes. we only ever meet two of his sisters at a time. Do we ever re-meet any of the sisters? No, it's just that, so the only time that we ever meet a sister is we meet two sisters mm -hmm. in this episode. And then in On Another Plane, when we flash back to his childhood, mm -hmm. we meet two sisters, one of which is a blonde and one of which is a yep. redhead. But, so we have three outstanding sisters. Yes. We could also say that the blonde here could be the blonde when they're yep. younger because we don't know their ages. So I, I will be honest. I love this headcanon. I'm happy to accept it. In my mind, Teresa was Rose's sister. That's another. Was that's, like was like a, a raspy voiced aunt. So Rose crosses the chair threshold and says, okay, oh, okay, listen, they had a small brush fire, but it's out now. Francis, give her $25 for a new azalea bush. Frank's response to that is to say to the senator in the phone, I could come over right now. Murphy charges away to a different part of the room in frustration. And then he just says, forget it. And he hangs up the phone. And he asks his mom if she's having a good time. But Rose's response is, there's no piano. She says, a large house like this, you'd think there'd be a piano so people could dance. Murphy says, you're in luck. Uncle Carmine said if, he's, if he can get the corn out of his teeth, he'll play his harmonica. <laughs> and Frank says, that is not good enough, Murph. 
If his mom wants to dance on her anniversary, he's not going to disappoint her. And he begins to storm out toward the front door. And they say, where are you going, Frank? And he says, to find a band. Oh, Frank. At that moment, dear sweet Jim is outside wearing an Uncle Wiggly Piggly's bib and knocks on the window. And he says, Murphy, it's starting to rain and people want to know if they can come inside. She goes, inside? The house? He says, no, they like to huddle in the hummingbird feeder. Yes, the house. He's so sassy right now. I love when Jim gets snarky. Oh, it's my favorite. I love him. And Murphy leans over and looks out the window and says, she doesn't see any rain. That's not rain, it's mist. What are you trying to start a panic? Jeez, Jim, if you're going to stir up trouble, why did you even come? At that moment, thunder and lightning, very, very frightening. Claps, blasts, and a downpour begins. I love you. Sorry, continue. Good reference. A downpour begins. Jim cries out, that's it, people. We're going in. Don't try to stop us, Murphy. And as the people rush in, Murphy yells, wait, wait, keep your corn and ribs outside. We cut to everyone really cramped, sitting about. I believe that Uncle Sal, which we do confirm later, is wearing Murphy's blue bathrobe. Sure is. Jim is going around offering everyone wet towels. (laughs) I don't understand wet towel. I guess that's all they have. I guess now they're all wet, right? So that's, if you want a towel, it has to be a wet towel? Maybe, or I I don't know. So (laughs) what I love is that we can see Eldon, like, hovering very sad and, like, the the sort of archway to the kitchen. I'm sorry. Eldon looks incredible. He does. That outfit, so good. I was going to get to that olive outfit. It's fantastic. I would have, I absolutely would have hit on Eldon. Murphy's handing out clothes. Someone with an Italian accent asked, you got something in blue? Uh, which she says she doesn't because the bathroom is taken. <laughs> Next, we find Mr. Fontana's talking to Miles about how his own son doesn't tell him how much money he makes. He wants to know how much money Frank makes. How much money does Miles make? Miles does not want to have this conversation. Nope. He makes an excuse. Eldon, in his fabulous suit, walks up to, <laughs> to Corky very sweetly, offers her a wet nap for the barbecue sauce. On her mouth, he even tries to offer to dab it before he hands it to her. And Corky's very embarrassed and, you know, she's trying to be polite. I'm almost wondering if they were setting up for them to, like, eventually have an affair. I don't know. I truly, I... It's sweet, but also, like, is she being polite because she's uncomfortable or is she embarrassed because she has sauce in her face? I feel like it's all of the above. Yeah, Potentially. I also, I know this is probably just, like, a schedule thing. Because I really want to see the hubs opposite Eldon. Oh, yeah. You I know? feel like he would be, he would, knowing Eldon, I feel like he would know not to say something. If that's, no, but that's there. the thing. I want yeah. to see Eldon in that doorway just gazing at Corky, knowing he can't do anything. Oh. So Eldon wants to know if, you know, she got the hair he sent, and she did. She just would rather that he not send hair in the mail because she has white furniture. Mm-hmm. And Eldon is shocked that she has furniture and says they live such different lives. <laughs> I'm wondering if, because I don't think this comes back again, his crush, if this is the moment he was like, you know what, we're just not, we're two, for two different worlds. Yeah, I, again, I think that Eldon, for all of these like creepy quirks that were given, is actually a very honorable and respectful man. And I he do is, feel like yeah. this is a turning point for him to back off. So two women who we find out are Frank's sisters, Pat and Mary, uh, approach Murphy with 
the clothes she's handing out, and she's like, I don't have any Donna Karen, no Ralph Lauren, and nothing in Anne Klein fits you. Now, I doubt that. I think that she doesn't want to give up the Anne Klein. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the two of them, they introduce themselves, and they're just so happy that they're throwing the party together because they were worried about Frank being 40, still single, which is they're implying oh, that the he's The death gay. now. So then, right? So then Murphy, being pissed at Frank, says, oh, you can stop wondering. Frank is gay. <laughs> now, something that we had known that we were going to talk about is, you know, if anyone has listened to our interview with Gary, we highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. And he does touch on this that we were so excited and amazed to hear was that to Gary and Steve, they felt that they were slowly writing Frank as a character who was going to realize that he was actually gay. Mm-hmm. And that this was sort of kind of leaning, leaning towards that, this this yeah. reference and it's so fascinating and and also just an example of how you know back then because eventually just so people you know are caught up the the network said no you know they were mm-hmm. they were pretty much told no this can't happen and you know not that long after ellen came out and now today we have wonderful fully fleshed gay characters on television right whose story um, isn't about them being gay there you go you know and but this also i think would have been well, we talked about it, but, you know, it's it's really sad that this didn't end up happening because it could have been a really interesting storyline. Yeah, and I think the way that they were setting it up, I think this had the makings to be not just revolutionary for a, a major lead being a, a gay character, but for being a character that was fully fleshed out and not just gay. Yes. And, and like people... I think this could have been one of those genre-changing roles where we got to know this three-dimensional character and then they also happen to come out. Yeah, and I think back then for a lot of people, you know, it's what Will and Grace did, right? People saw characters mm-hmm. that were gay who they had never met. And that's what I love about television, among many reasons, is that it can open up people's worlds where they can meet someone who's Jewish or they can meet mm-hmm. someone who's from a different background than them. And then all of a sudden they see that they're not the enemy and that they're just like everybody else. And mm-hmm. then they have that experience that they just don't have in their life to empathize or understand mm-hmm. that we're all the same. I love having this information in hindsight because I think I think about what it would have been like to have a character like Frank who has a very traditionally masculine job who is it you know like has all doesn't have all of these tropes of what people expected a gay man to look like. Yes. That like what that could have done for the conversation of like yeah, being a gay man doesn't just mean Jack from Will and Grace. Yes, like, exactly. They are neurotic. They are like they are masculine. They are they trip over their words. They are not inherently feminine. Like, you know, like there are all these things that he could have been a poster child for that like the the queer experience is as varied as the hetero experience. Yeah, and, sh- um, and yeah. show people, you know, that who may be struggling themselves, right? Because this is a time mm-hmm. when, and even maybe a little today, but not as much today, to not feel like you can come out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe someone watching that could have went, well, I'm 40 and I'm afraid to deal with these feelings in myself and maybe it's never too late. Yep. The idea that someone like Frank could be, even with his neuroses, because we know he's a neurotic tenderness, yeah that someone like Frank could have the power and position and status and also be gay would have been so powerful. It really would. Yeah. And I um, think, so I, I like knowing in retrospect that he was. Yeah. And so it makes this, this section not just feel like 
Murphy's being petty, even though she kind of is. We know that yeah. there's more behind that. So Frank shows up. He says he was this close to getting the harpsichordist from the Sheraton. But Murphy has had it. She goes, I could kill you right now, Frank. I could kill you and I could eat a sandwich and go to bed and not think about it because I have really had it. Frank's father comes over and he comments that the coffee is like dishwater. And it's the, it's the last thing at the party. And so it's the only thing that people are going to remember. And then it's time for a speech. But Frank needs to leave because he's got to get coffee, which obviously is just an excuse. And this is when Murphy gets really serious, right? Like before it's sort of played for laughs, but now she's really serious with him that he needs to stop running. Mm-hmm. He can't just walk out. He needs to make this toast. And he just, he says he can't, you know, that, that everything that comes out of his parents' mouth is depressing. Nothing he ever does is good enough. All he wanted to do was make things better for them. And, and it never works. And Murphy has this really great speech, which I think is so important for kids, you know, even as adults to understand, you know, is that a lot of times when your parents get to a certain age, they're just not going to change. Mm-hmm. Right? They're also human, right? They're not just, you know, your parents had a childhood and traumas and things they had to deal with as well, right? And that he just needs to put up with it until we all grow up and become our parents and then our kids tell their friends how crazy you are. And I thought, the circle of life. <laughs> and so they're calling Frank over, and, you know, speech, speech. And Frank is just like, you know, I can't do it. And that's when Murphy hits him with the zinger that we talked about at the beginning. She says, you know what, Frank? Doing all those heroic things on camera, I thought you'd be braver than this. You oh, faked me so out. good. So good. And what's great is that then Frank says that maybe, he says, maybe I faked all of us out. And then he leaves. Joe is so good in this episode. He's so good. Like, he, we were talking about this before we started recording, but this was an episode that I remembered existing, but I really forgot a lot about. It's yeah, not one same. that I immediately, I remember moments from it, the meeting of the parents, that kind of thing. But it's such a, and I don't mean this negatively, it's such a quiet episode to me. Yes. And but it's so impactful watching it now because it gives us, it's very funny, obviously, but it's also, it brings such a subtle depth to Frank's character yeah. and all the things we we laugh at Frank about, but it brings such honesty, but with such a deftness that it's not too heavy, but those, those lines just hit. They just hit in such a, a wonderful way that is earned from two seasons of getting to know these characters. So we yeah. can be that simple and quiet with it. And it's not played for laughs, right? It's not the neurotic mm -hmm. of like, I guess I'm just a loser. It's this, yeah, I guess I per it's just all fake and not really that yep. brave. Like he's really it's sad about this. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking, you know? And and Murphy is, I think, just deeply disappointed, but also just sad for him. Mm -hmm. So Murphy is forced to do a toast. Ugh. She says that Frank left his wallet at the 7-Eleven. And so he told her what to say, but she can't, you can tell she, she, I love, you know, Candace's look kind of looking up, you know, how people look up when they can't remember what they're about to say. And she's trying, mm -hmm. trying to make something up. She says something that may be from her childhood about coming home to milk and cookies and their dog chipper, although it may just be something that Murphy wishes happened. <laughs> but, uh, Rose is very, very confused, but then Frank shows up. He literally shows up for his family and he comes in. And he tries to make this toast. And I have to say, Rosemarie is looking at him like she's so proud. 
Like she is. What what when when they admit that they are proud of him and they love him, it is not a surprise because no. she's just gazing at her son, right? Like she's just everything is she she is having a good time even if they're complaining, which is what we get at. Mm-hmm. But Frank really can't say much. And so we just, you know, wish them a, ha- a happy anniversary, mom and pop. And, and Rose is like, that's it. At least her speech had a dog. And that Frank has just had it. That, you know, he, fine, you know, they can just add it to their list of complaints that all they do is complain. And no one in the mm-hmm. room agrees. And he's shocked. He says he flew them to Italy. They complained that there were too many pigeons and the flight was lousy. He got them a condo in Florida. It was too humid. And, and they think that, that he's, he's crazy. The flight was was fine. They love the condo. His father says, oh, I could use an extra bathroom. And he's like, that's it. That's it. They just, <laughs> Dominic Fontana says something that I feel sort of bridges the gap between the fact that many stories about Italian-Americans are very close to stories about Jewish-Americans. And it does mm-hmm. not surprise me that this is based on one of the writer's Jewish family. He says, mm-hmm. that's not a complaint. It's an observation. <laughs> Oh, it's so real. <laughs> and the worst part is I have been called on this by people and have kind of said the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> not just my family, me. I'm like, no, no, I'm not complaining. I'm just, just, just you know, just tell, telling you about my day. <laughs> and Rose is like, we have seven wonderful children. We have our, our health. Of course we're happy. And, and his father says, you know, if God thinks you're too happy, he punishes you, which feels very Catholic. Uh-huh. And... Rose Marie Rose Fontana says that you have to understand, Frank, that they're simple people. She says to her her husband, and she's very proud of this. She's like, Dominic, you know, say, say, talk about what happened last week. And he's so proud and happy. And he found golf balls on the golf course and they were all in really good shape. (laughs) And 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 then Frank says that he wished that they had all told him that seventy thousand dollars ago. And the room laughs. And, uh, and Frank's dad tells him, you know, to, to, they should give a toast and, you know, make us proud. And his mother says, like you always do. It's oh, really a very sweet moment that they're. That got me. They realize, you know, oh, we have, we thought he knew. We, we have to, like, we need to tell him. Mm-hmm. He needs to hear this in this moment. Which is really shows that his parents are telling the truth, right? Because they could just go, yeah. ah, no one needs to tell anyone that they care. They just know. No, they they, yeah. they realize that he needs to be told that in that moment. It also shows that they maybe see their son more than he thinks they do. Like, they know uh, yeah. that Frank needs that. Agreed. And he just makes this beautiful speech about how he's glad that everyone's together and that he hopes that they're together for another 50 years. And again... Rose is so proud. And then when he's done, she literally like puts her head on on Joe's shoulder. Like, it's so sweet. You know, mm-hmm. she, they love each other. And then they go to cut the cake and she says to her husband, Dominic, make a wish. And he says, I wish the cake was chocolate. <laughs> and Rose laughs, which apparently is a real quote from the party that Carrie threw for his family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. What is what a lovely ending. It's really lovely. Yeah. It's I think it's also something that I think I appreciate more now as an adult than I that's probably true. did as a kid. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. No, I think it's a very relatable episode. Whether you're Italian or not. Yep. Thank you so much to our Patreon members. If 
we didn't have the Patreon, we literally would not be able to do this podcast. Thank you so much. We see much. your names. We know your names. We appreciate you. We do. For those who aren't with us, we post special things, things that we've recorded from extra long episodes that we just had to cut. Mm-hmm. I've also been beginning to post some clips from my VCR recordings or mm-hmm. things on YouTube that we were able to get before they went away. So that's going to be special. I know we definitely have a, a primetime live coming up that is nowhere to be found. Is my favorite that's right. behind the scenes. And so we hope that you'll join us and let us know what you like. You can also make a one-time donation mm-hmm. if you would like. You don't have to be on our monthly Patreon. Uh, you can also support us without spending a dime by rating us five stars on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcast. That really uh, pushes it so that more people can see it. Share it on your social media. Engage with our social media. We love uh, chatting with you. That gets us out in front of your followers and our followers. Any way to just spread the love, spread the word, let people know that that you're listening so we can engage with them as well. Yeah, we support you any way that you wish to support us. We are so glad you are here at the party. Indeed. The party where we serve only Uncle Wiggly Piggly's and bibs. Bibs for everyone. We will turn in, uh, this show into an episode of Hot Ones. Oh, all I want is to be on Hot Ones because I would just disintegrate. I ha- I cannot handle heat. Same. I'm part of me wants to be on Hot Ones because I know I would disintegrate and it would be really funny television, but I'm worried because of the Crohn's. Oh yeah, no. But Pete Davidson has Crohn's and he was totally on Hot Ones. Not that everyone's Crohn's is the same, right? And I was like, oh, well maybe. I might have to consult my doctor. (laughs) They do have a spit bucket. I guess maybe I I could just like (laughs) wish it in my mouth, right? Like, are you allowed to spit the whole thing out? You know, but we'll we'll talk to him about it. And so we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Eureka.